And now, a real story from a real soldier. It's the Soldier Stories Podcast on Facebook and Twitter at Podcast Soldier. This week's Soldier Story begins. It is the Soldier Stories Podcast. My name is Fife, the host of this podcast, and the goal is to shine some light on things that our soldiers experience, whether it's overseas or the moments leading up to their enlistment, the moments after the enlistment, through basic training, the whole thing. Uh, that's basically what we're going to do is we're going to tell these stories of soldiers. And today I have decided to go with our first guest for Soldier Stories Podcast as being my own father, who you and I have not had a lot of conversations about your time in the military. This is actually probably going to go deeper than any conversation we had. You don't really talk about it a whole lot at all, to be honest. You tend to pick and choose your times and when and what you want to talk about. That's correct. (laughs) So uh, this is going to be a little bit different for, I think, both of us and um, a a little strange. So uh, this is my father, Tom Pfeiffer, and um, you were in the United States Army. That's correct. You're an enlisted man. Yes, I was. And you went in um, just before the conflict really got uh, public and, and a lot of coverage in the news for Vietnam. Yeah, I went in in uh, September 10th of 1965. So before we even get into this moment when you decided to go enlist, let's talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Now we're talking about the Detroit of the 50s and 60s. And for people that don't know, the Detroit of the 50s and 60s, Detroit was supposed to be the sister city of New York City. And it was for a long time. Beautiful buildings. The architecture is unbeatable. Thankfully, now that they're trying to renovate a lot of that downtown area, they're trying to save some of the architecture. But uh, you grew up in a different time from what I think people think of Detroit now. And I'm not saying that Detroit is a bad place now because it's really come a long way. But there was some dark times for Detroit where there was a lot of crime. There was a lot of uh, abandoned buildings and dirty buildings. They're finally starting to take some of those down. But Explain what Detroit was like in the 50s and 60s to you, from your perspective. Well, I was a child. I was born in 1946, and my family was originally from Detroit. They all lived on the same street. My mother lived on the same street her entire life, which was on the east side of Detroit. Uh, The homes were all brick homes, uh, beautiful mahogany interiors. Outside, we had trees, elm trees that were majestic. They came together, and when you went down the street, it looked like you were in a tunnel. And you, uh, you, you grew up on Balfour Street. Correct. In the communities at that time, everything you needed was pretty much in walking distance. That's right. My house was, uh, was one of the ones that were manufactured right after World War II for the returning uh, servicemen. Okay. It was a Miller home, and that company manufactured basically the same house. They stumped it on different lots within the city. And they made them available for the returning GIs. Which your father is a veteran right. of World, World War, War II, II. and he actually stormed the beaches of Normandy. Yep. Yes, he did. Now, was his father also military? No, he wasn't. Okay, so his dad, not military. Your father had to go into the military. World War II, obviously, huge worldwide, right. big, right. big war. Right. And there's probably, uh, you know, of his age group or where his age group would have been, you know, 20 years ago, uh, I would say the majority of the men around his age had served in that war. Yeah, most of my neighbors were all World War II veterans. Uh, some of them even got called back for the Korean War. Did this weigh in on your factor, your decision to join, or did that yeah. come later? 
Well, it didn't really weigh in as a factor, but back in those days, and it's hard to visualize that in today's world, but every male that turned 18 years old had two choices. Either you went in the military service or you went to college. Okay. And when you went to college, after you got out of college, you went to military service. There was no getting out of the military unless you had some kind of medical uh, disability. So it was one or the other, or it was both. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So okay. you really didn't have much choice back then. And you had to maintain a certain certain if level you, of, of uh, academics yeah. when you were in college. If you went to uh, college, I, th- I think it was a, a 2.5 or something like that, you had to maintain that, or you lost your uh, your waiver. For the military. So what was what was your deciding? Did you not, did you, with the college thing? Well, it wasn't just the college. It's like you said, my dad was in World War II, and it's funny to talk about. But when you're a kid, World War II was it for you when you were a kid. I mean, you played war. You fought against the Germans. You fought against the Japanese. And even during the Korean War, you never heard about it. Because you got to remember, this, this was a time when there was no social media. Right. There was no 24-7 news. What your government wants you to know, you know. Exactly. Okay. And, the, and the news people were friendly with the politicians. They went out to drink with them. It was the good old boy system. And you just didn't know what was going on in the world. But you, you know? kind of knew it was happening. Right. You kind of knew. You heard people talk about Korea. I had cousins that went to Korea. But it wasn't a big deal like World War II. Right. So that was the things you played when you were a kid. I mean— all little boys had guns. We all had our World War II surplus helmets that we used to get at the Army surplus store. So it was a way of life for a little kid. And I did that my whole life. Anyway, when I got to school, I was into sports. I played football, played baseball, track, etc. And uh, when I was a senior, it finally hit me. He said, you know, I never really studied. I never learned how to study in high school. I... Uh, I was one of the lucky ones that could take a test and do it with flying colors. But you winged the rest of it. And I just winged it. You know, I, I did my homework the day that it was due. <laughs> you know, I'd be in, sitting in church. I went to a Catholic high school. I'd be sitting in church with a book laying on the pew, kneeling, reading the pages that we were going to have a test on for that day. Now, I, I think it's interesting that you say this because I, it's, you know, again, uh, for those who uh, might have skipped ahead here in the podcast, I am talking with my father. And it's you're like describing me. Only I didn't do so great on those tests. I couldn't take a test with flying colors, but I did wing it. I would do my homework on the day of, especially high school, grade school. I think you guys were on me a little bit more, but high school years, you know, I think you yeah. were trusting that I was doing what I was supposed to. Yeah. And I don't think I was, which is why I ended up being a, a CB student, yeah. you know, maybe an A in history, because for some reason I have always gravitated to history, which is probably something else yeah. I took from you. Yeah. So, well, I, Like I said, I was able to take the tests, and I always did great. When it would come time to finals or whatever, I would max them out, but it would even out with my other grades, and I usually end up with a C, B, B-plus average. So when I got to be a senior, I seen all these kids getting ready to go to college, and I had a football offer to play at Northern Michigan University okay. with a scholarship. And as the time approached and got closer and it was mid-senior year, I kept thinking to myself, you know what, you know, I'm not prepared for college. I didn't learn how to study. You know, I learned how to crash for a test or I I learned how to cram for a test, but I just, I could never play sports and go to college and end up with a 
whatever grade point average you have to have. And I was going to end up in the military anyway. So I figured to myself, what the heck, you know, why put it off? I'll just go and get it out of the way. And at this point, publicly, there's nothing going on. No. You uh, didn't, you weren't, you weren't going in and listing knowing you were headed off no. to any sort of war. Vietnam was a faraway place. You heard about it occasionally. Again, conflict was right. the term they used. It was, it was a, never war. Right. It was a conflict. And I had known because I was, I loved history, like you mentioned. President Kennedy had sent advisors to Vietnam, which were mostly Green Berets. There was really no combat troops there yet. It was all advisory role. And they were, you saw casualties, you saw Green Berets getting killed, and you would hear about it. But it was something that you just didn't visualize that me or my next door neighbors would ever end up in a place like that. Right. So when I was thinking about the military, I wasn't thinking about, I'm going to be John Wayne and I'm going to go over and fight a war. So. That brings us to the decision. You've right. now decided I'm going into the military. Right. Did you tell your parents before you went and enlisted? Uh, I think I went and saw the recruiter first and talked to him. And then I came home and told my parents that you know, I really thought I was going to go into the military instead of go to college. All right. Reaction time. Your dad <laughs> already served in World War II. He's right. a veteran. How did he react? Uh, he didn't. He didn't really overreact as far as negatively. I don't think he was happy that I was making that choice, but he supported what I was doing. Just the opposite with my mother. Okay, how did she react? She was totally against it. She uh, she didn't want her son to go in the military. It wasn't the fact that she wasn't patriotic. She just didn't think that I should go into the military at 18 years old. Sure. I should go to college. I, I, think, any, I think any and right. every parent will have that initial worry when somebody says, I'm joining the military. Right. They're going to have that worry. Right. So uh, you've told me before, she literally stopped talking to you. Well, I think <clears throat> I, I had enlisted. I got the enlistment. I, I took the tests. And uh, I was scheduled to go in September. And this was still, I graduated, I think, in June. So I had June, July, and August to really you know, try to talk my way through it. But I could never really get to her. As a matter of fact, the recruiter actually came to my home. Okay. And he had told me that I had did extremely well on uh, the uh, military aptitude testing. And uh, he said he didn't want to try to talk me into anything, but uh, because that I had scored so high, they were looking at people to get into the Army Security Agency, which was a military uh, intelligence unit. Which I believe they call that now uh, the uh, intelligence, military intelligence corps. Right. Okay. And uh, he said that the only problem with that being is if I joined at that time, I could go for a two-year enlistment or three if I went into regular Army. If I went into this, it would be a four-year enlistment. And because it was a four-year enlistment, you had to go to school for at least one year, and then you would be assigned to wherever they they would assign you to. I really didn't know that much about the Army Security Agency, and, and they gave me a bunch of uh, brochures and the information. And uh, it sounded exciting. And uh, It should be noted you had to right. be in the top 10% of the test takers. Correct, top 10%. Top yeah. 10% in scores yep. to and even be considered for correct. this group. Correct, and there was only a certain number every year that they actually – recruited to go into the Army Security Agency. Uh, so I, I did. I, I took the four-year enlistment, 
Uh, my father was happy that I was getting into something that I uh, wouldn't be running around hiding in foxholes and carrying a rifle. And I wasn't avoiding that, believe me. But the fact was, it wasn't to me, it wasn't a wartime no, deal. I mean, it wasn't at, right. the, at this point, you did not know no. how big no. Vietnam would no. become, especially in the United States. Correct. It became a civil unrest Correct. situation Correct. between the government and between some of the citizens. Yep. And citizens and citizens were coming together and they were, you know, clashing. Yep. It, it's very similar to, I think, what um, people may have experienced the last few years as far as yep. a country divided. Yeah. Um, Music was just starting with the Beatles. Yeah. There was no long hair. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it was a, dis- a different time. And I looked at myself going to Europe because of the Cold War. The Russians were the enemy. And that's where I figured I was going to end up in, in Europe. And, you know, we'll get more into this later, but I have to think when you went into the military versus when you got out of the military, you left one United States and you right. came home to a totally different yeah. United States. I was in the military 48 months, and I spent 37 months overseas. So it was like when I left, I knew all the cars. I knew a lot of the music. Uh, and when I came back, I couldn't tell you what kind of car there was. I couldn't tell you what movies were popular. It was just like I lost three years of my life. Wow. So well, it's different. Before we go into that, I want to. I, I want to. What I want to do is reset here. Uh, you, your parents <clears throat> both reacted differently. Now it's time for you to go. What advice was given to you by your parents before you left? Of course, my mother didn't give any advice. Nothing. No, she she totally had shut the door at this point. Wow. My dad told me. He said, "Look," he says, "You're going in the military." He said, "I was in the military, so I know what you're going to face." He said, but I just want to tell you a couple of things. He said, you know, number one, he says, if you're going in, go fully in. You know, don't do it half-assed. Mm-hmm. If you're going to give it, give it your all. Secondly, experience everything that you can. He says, you're going to see a lot of good things. You're going to see a lot of bad things, but experience everything. And he said, last, try everything. Don't be afraid to try everything. If you go to an exotic place, try the exotic food. <laughs> if you go to, uh, you know, just don't shut yourself out. Don't put yourself behind closed doors for whatever time period you're going to be there. You're never going to get this opportunity again, so take everything that they give you. You Really soak everything in. Correct. All right, so the vice is given. It's time to ship out. Where do you have to report to on the day of reporting to the military? Well, September 10th, uh, I got up about 4 o'clock. I had to be down at the induction center, which was Fort Wayne, which was in downtown Detroit. And... uh, my father was going to drive me down on his way to work, drop me off at Fort Wayne. So I got up, got packed, didn't take a lot. Uh, went to say goodbye to my mother. She wouldn't say goodbye to me. She absolutely refused to, to come with me to the door. She wouldn't come to the induction center. She was totally, uh, totally against it. And, of course, my dad was just the opposite. He was kind of melancholy that day because I was leaving. And we really didn't talk much on our way down to the induction center. So we got down to the adduction center, and we got to the front gate, and he left me off. And the MPs are there. Of course, you had to show them your orders to get in. And I went in, and that's when I started the processing. Uh, you went through physicals. You went through more batteries of tests. Uh, you went through some indoctrination. Wait, and, they did this before you even shipped off to basic training? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. See, I yeah. thought – and 
you know, again, this is my lack of knowledge on military. Mm-hmm. I did not follow in your footsteps. And you always said that you hoped that your sons never went yep. into the military yep. simply because there was some conflicts. You had the Gulf War, and then obviously September 11th caused a, a whole other war. Um, but you had always said when we were growing up that you and Grandpa fought wars so that we wouldn't have to. That was kind of your yep. your mindset. Yep. Um, but see, my mind and what I thought happened is I thought you got on a bus in Detroit, you went to where you had to go, and then at that point, that's when it all started. The physicals, the shots, no. the hair getting chopped off, all of that started. I thought that started after you no. arrived. I thought I was going to beat the system before I even went down to the induction center. I got a brush cut. Oh. Figured, oh, I'm going to beat them. They ain't going to shave my head. But anyway, the induction center was just that. You went through your physical. You filled out your forms for your pay. A lot of guys didn't make it through the physical. I mean, they found stuff that they didn't know they had. Uh, and got turned around. Uh, there was other people that were being drafted at the induction center. Uh, during that time, they really didn't have a big military buildup yet, so a lot of the services were short. So there was a line of inductees over here, uh, a line of people that, that joined the service over here, and they'd go down the line of inductees and say, okay, you three go to the Army, you two go to the Navy, you go to the Marine Corps. So they chose right, where, where you, you were, were going. going. Right, for wow. the, the people that were getting drafted. Okay, uh, they did that for a while until they started getting the, the buildup of the services. But I filled out all my paperwork. I did everything that I had to do. And it took about, well, I got there at 6 in the morning. It took probably about 6 at night until I got through everything. And at that time, they called you into a room. They swore you into the, the service. You stood there, put your hand up, and they gave you the oath. And then once you took the oath, you they, are military. Right. First thing they did is have us go out and start picking up cigarette butts off the, the floor. <laughs> Welcome to the Army. Uh, Because they didn't have military transportation at that time, uh, they would get a group of people that were going to, say, Fort Leonard Wood, where where I took my basic training. They got those people together. They gave us our records uh, that they had made up during the day, the the physicals and all that kind of stuff. They put one guy in charge. They gave him the tickets, and they said, okay, you got to get on this train at this time. And... Go to Fort Leonard Wood. So that's where we started. All right. So where's Fort Leonard? That's again? Missouri. But the interesting thing was to get downtown Detroit, we had to take a, a military uh, bus. And when we got on the bus, this now this is the first time I'd ever experienced anything. There was a, there was a, um, I don't know if it was a, I can't recall exactly if it was a council person, son or if it was one of the civil rights people's son in the city of Detroit, uh, got drafted, and it was big protest started at the main gate of Fort Wayne. Oh. And that's the first time I'd ever experienced any kind of social or political conflict at this point. And the MPs actually had to part them as we went out the gate because they were protesting uh, this kid's induction. So that was kind of an interesting thing, you know, and I, I just— You got smoked. a tiny taste before you got left. Got a tiny taste, right. But yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't because of the Vietnam War at that time. It was just the fact that— Somebody you know, was forced into service. Right, it was going into service. Anyway, okay. we took the bus down to the train station uh, where I eventually ended up working for 30-some years that, out of that train station. But we boarded a train and headed down to uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And I'd never been anywhere in my life, really, except Canada— you know, and up north. So I'd really never seen a lot of the things I started to see as we started going deeper 
down towards Missouri, you know, you started seeing the homes along the tracks, and it was just kind of an eye-opening experience. But it was it was good, you know. I, I was enjoying it at that point. <laughs> I'm guessing that as you arrived, you got a real quick awakening. Now, I should explain this. I I, I don't know how much you want out there. You you were a fighter a little bit when you were in high school. You didn't like to Correct. be told what to do. You've never Correct. been a fan of no. that. No. Now your whole world's changing because no. in the military, you do what you're told. Right. So as you get there and your drill instructors, I'm assuming, are making sure you understand who's right. in charge. Right, right away. How did this play out? What happened as the bus pulled up? Well, the bus pulled in. It was after, we, got the, we got a bus from uh, the train station in Missouri to Fort Leonard Wood. And as the bus arrived, the DIs were all standing outside the bus, just like you've seen a lot of the movies, you know, with their DIs, smoking the bear hats and their starched fatigues. And here, you know, we had guys with leather jackets on and, you know, whatever, and getting off the bus. And they had uh, footsteps uh, painted on the cement. And they were yelling at you. And, of course, it wasn't politically corrected as it is nowadays. You know, they could just do about anything they wanted to back in the 60s when you went through boot camp. There, there's a whole, um, there's a whole psychology, I think, Correct. to being a drill instructor because the goal is to break you down and then build, build you up. That's exactly right. And so at that time, you know, maybe they knew a little more than you guys oh, did yeah. about the conflict yep. and how much bigger it was going Correct. to get. Yep. And so they were getting you ready. And <laughs> so explain to me uh, exactly how it played out. What was the first thing you remember a drill instructor? And I want you to be straight up. If you can remember it, don't bleep yourself. I want to know the first thing you can remember a drill instructor getting into your face and saying. Dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's the first thing. Yeah. yeah, Okay, all right. Stand over there, dickhead. You know, that that kind of stuff. All right. And so you you stood on the... the, uh, the steps, and they told you, you know, where your feet exactly had to go, and then everybody had to stand in line. And that started it. They called it zero week. Okay. Uh, zero week was a time where you had mentioned earlier you got your shots. Uh, yeah, t- talk about this because uh, I, had the, uh, I had the opportunity to chat just a little bit with my father-in-law, yeah. uh, and he mentioned that they had these guns, and they just walked down the line, and I was sitting here thinking, that sounds so insanitary. Uh, and he said they just walk down the line, stick it to your arm, and doosh, 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 doosh. And he said they were getting shots for like 20 different things. So, you know, they just kept shooting in the arm. You said it was worse for no, you. No, they didn't have those. Uh, the little guns uh, weren't little available. Guns. No, they had actual needles. And it was medics that did it. And uh, So you, being gentle and loving no. and sweet to you and giving you a Band-Aid and a sucker was not a part of this. No, it wasn't. They just <laughs> threw it at you, and, and they took it. And each arm was one on each side. And as you went down, they, they rotated, you know, one arm, the next arm, the next arm. And then the next thing you did after that was they made you do pole duty, and we had to go back to the barracks and scrub the floors. To keep your arm keep worked out. Keep your down. arm worked out. And you didn't think about that then, but that's what they're – their line of thinking was, you know, you could work it out. Okay. But that whole week, that whole week was filled with that, getting your hair cut, getting your uniforms. What was the first thing that popped into your head the morning that you first had to wake up early? No, I can remember that exactly because I remember laying in the, laying in the bed. It was like four thirty in the morning, and looking up 
My corner was a double bunk. There was somebody above me, and I was below, and I could look up at that mattress above my head, and I just kept thinking to myself, man, what did I do? You know, <laughs> Four years times 365 is 12,000 some odd days to go before I get out of the service. So uh, it, was, it was an eye-opener, you know. And then when the DI came in and started hitting the garbage cans and telling you to roll out of the sack and you got five minutes to dress and shave and how did you take this as somebody who doesn't like to be told what to do? Did you was was there pushback from you no. at first or were you just too you were like, Nope, I'm doing this, I'm not gonna I was afraid. Okay. I really was. I was afraid. I Because you, you know, don't know what you're expecting. No, it's it was totally a different world and uh you know, I, th- I think I, a lot of people might say they talk a bigger game. Oh, I wouldn't let no, somebody push no. me around. Then you get there, I think you no, change. There were some big guys that tried that, but they didn't stay big very long. I mean, they, <laughs> and like I said, it wasn't politically correct. If you didn't do something right away, they made you do it. Well, and don't know? they swarm you? If you get in one drill instructor's right. face, don't Two you have three, three yeah. of them coming at yeah. you? <laughs> Especially if you say something smart, you know. Oh, God. And, and, I, and I had known that from talking to my dad. You know, He said, you know, number one, don't volunteer at this point to say anything to anybody and keep your mouth shut. And I saw that right away. You know, if somebody said something or put a smile on their face, that was wiped off right away. Gosh, I couldn't even imagine. And they had that, from that day, they knew he was a screw-up or he was a smart-ass, and they harassed him the whole 10, 12 weeks that you were there. What was your schedule like? Because I know that in basic training, you have a strict schedule right. that you have to stick to. So yeah. you're up at Four hundred hours, at four o'clock in the morning. It would be up at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, you had uh, uh, well, the, the three S's. You know, you had to get that done. And okay. They only give you so many minutes to do that, mm-hmm. and uh, you had to be dressed and out and stand formation. And they give you about twenty minutes to do all that. And that includes your barracks have to be like yep. put back together. Yep. Everything, yep. all the beds yep. have to be made. And that was part of the training process during zero week. They came in and taught you how to make your bed with the, the hospital corners and dropping the quarter on it and. You know, that kind of a thing. And what what kind of penalties did soldiers have if they didn't make the bed right or their their trunk wasn't locked yeah. or something like that? Well, you're, you're probably – you're probably asking me that because I probably told you before the one time that that uh, mine wasn't. Uh, when I came back in, it was dumped over, tipped over, <laughs> everything was dumped out, and they made me dig a hole outside. It had to be a five-by-five-foot hole five feet deep, five feet wide. I had to bury my bunk completely <laughs> and then unbury it and clean it and wash it and have it ready for the next morning. It took me all night to do that. And they stayed right there and watched every move I made, you know. Wow. I can't but that even, was me. You know? I can't fathom, like, being told to do something like that. And yeah. you have to because, yeah. again, you're terrified. You were 18 years old, but yeah. – Another part of me would be sitting there, I think, with a complete look of, are you are you being serious or are you just messing with me? No. And, of course, it was drummed into you that these were NCOs and, you know, you had to listen to them or, right. you know, that was your orders. So um, so you get up, you take care of that stuff, you make yep. the bed, then you're off to, is it uh, exercise first? No, or? you go to mess hall first. Oh, that can't be great on your stomach once well, exercise rolls around. Before before you came in, they had a monkey bar set up to the front door of the mess hall. And you had to do the monkey bar all the way across till you got to the front door, then you went in and ate. Okay. And back then you were either U.S., which is a draftee, 
uh, ER, which is Enlisted Reserve, RA, which was Regular Army, or NG National Guard. So they would put you through, if you were a Regular Army enlistee like I was, you went first. It was always first. You know, if you were U.S., you would go second. If you were ER, you would go third, and if you were NG, you went last, you know, to matter, no matter what it was. And that's the way they did. They looked at the guys that were RA as they were there because they wanted to be there. Right. And the other guys that were NG or ER were there because they didn't want to get in the regular Army. Did they decide what you ate? Yeah, it was the same stuff every day. And you had how much time to eat? Uh, about 15 minutes. So 15 yeah. minutes are up, you didn't clear your plate. No, they they really didn't say too much about it, but you had to eat everything you put on your plate. Okay. I mean, so you you and, and everything was just put on. You know, it was it was no organization. It just you went through it and you had you know SOS and you had eggs and about just. So if you time. if you're one of those people that doesn't like your food touching, well, well, you're in trouble. Well, and the thing about it was too, a lot of guys would go in there and pile it on and and then go back and they couldn't eat it all. Oh. You know, and then they would they would come and jump in their their case about it. So you learned. But if you go in, if you're heavy and you go into the basic training, you'll lose weight. And if you're too skinny, you go into basic training, you'll gain muscle mass and weight. So it all kind of boiled down. Fifteen minutes are up. Now where are you headed to? Well, then you would go to PT. Okay. And know. how long does this last? Yeah, hour. Maybe you did your push-ups. You're just normal physical this is training. Calisthenics, yep. uh, stretching, yep. things yep. like that. All right, yep. so PT yep. comes to an end. Now what? Then you'd start your uh, indoctrination and your learning. Learn how to take apart your rifle, put it back together. Learn the uh, military code of conduct. Learn all the different things to become a soldier. You right. Know? Uh, you learn all the basics. Uh, you have eight weeks, and it's broken down into, into different weeks where you would know they were, what was coming. One week you knew that you were going to go in the rifle range. Another week you knew that you were going to go through the gas chamber. Another week you knew that you were going to go through the uh, physical training pass or fail test. So you knew ahead of time, you know, the different things you were going to look forward to. Before we move on, let's talk about those experiences. Yeah. First time you had to go into the gas chamber. Ah. Well, when you went in, they, you didn't really know what you're getting yourself into. You hold the mask, though. You take a mask in with you. Right. Uh, they've already taught you in one of the classes how to clear your mask, how to put it on and everything, but you got to go in without the mask. When you get in there, then the gas comes, and they tell you ahead of time, when they come up to you, they have their mask on, the DIs, and you have to stand in front of him, and you would have to do certain things. You might have to say your your military identification number. Or you might have to uh, sing the, uh, say the Pledge of Allegiance. You would have to do certain things without the mask on. And then they'd say, okay, put the mask on, and you put the mask on and clear it and have to go outside. But at that time, you're throwing up and your eyes are watering. Right. You know, just to get the taste of going through and seeing what tear gas does to you, you know. All right. So uh, first time firing a rifle, was it the first time you'd fired a weapon in your entire life? Or did your father take you? No, I had fired weapons before. But my my thing was, as you're well aware, I'm not a mechanical type person. You know, I don't know how to take things and put them apart. So that was the most difficult thing for me. Learn how to take a weapon apart, put it back together, and cleaning it and that kind of a thing. Which is good for you to learn because yeah. you'd eventually well, go you into law to, enforcement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you got to remember, too, that we were, we were still carrying M14 rifles, which were you know, not the M16s or the AR-16s or 15s that they had later on when, we, when you went over to Vietnam or that. These were the old-style World War II M14 rifles. Okay, so that hadn't changed yet. No. How about uh, – because I feel like this would be – 
one of the coolest experiences. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, first time you threw a grenade, a oh, live grenade. How yeah. did that feel? Was it crazy? Well, before you even get in to throw a live grenade, you practice. You know, they give you a practice grenade, and they show you how to throw it and how many seconds you have and that type of thing. And it was it was a scary experience because, you know, I don't know if they had the full load in there. You know, they didn't have shrapnel in that that they have in regular grenades, but they did the big bang, and they would explode. But you would get in there, they'd have your, your uh, DI would be right there with you, and uh, they would tell you what to do, it, and you'd have to throw it. And, you know, you'd have to throw it a, a pretty good distance, and I was pretty good at that, so I didn't, I didn't mind that. I enjoyed the grenade. Did you get an adrenaline rush that first yes. time? Yes, you did. I, God, I can't even imagine that. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, you, know, you, you know me. I'm your son. I am <laughs> not much of a gun person. I never have been. But I went shooting with a buddy. And I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. Like, there's a lot of power at the end of your hands. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that part of the training. Okay, so you go, uh, you do your exercise and your calisthenics, then you go in and you do your training. Now what? Well, usually then you, you have your lunch break, and what they would do is they, wherever you were at at that time, they would bring the, the meal out to you. You know, they would come out with a truck or something, and they would sit there and have to eat the chow out, outside or whatever. It was raining, they'd eat out there. But uh, that was basically it, and your whole day was was doing that. Now, I must add, though, during that, too, you would get assigned different things. You would get assigned to KP. Uh, if you got assigned to KP, you spend a whole day in the mess hall serving the other GIs and helping them cook the food and that kind of a thing or washing the dishes. Uh, during the nighttime, you might they call what they called fire patrol. You'd have to walk up and down the barracks because they were all wooden barracks, and they would— you would be a fire patrol and just make sure no fire started in a barracks. Or you'd have to stoke the uh, the stoves. They had one building because these were all World War II barracks and they didn't have air conditioning and didn't have heat in that. They had to stoke the furnaces, which would give you the heat in the barracks. So you get assigned different things. So being smart that I was uh, and athletic that I was, I volunteered to join the basic training company B football team oh <laughs> so uh i got out of a lot of that okay. in basic training because they would you would go practice football after you did all your other stuff during the day okay so you would get that extra so um basic training is going on mm-hmm. um you're learning new things are you getting more comfortable in your role as a soldier is it starting to feel less hard for you to <sighs> be told what to do the initial, the initial part of it, like I said, the indoctrinations, learning experiences, uh, as, it, as you went on in basic training, it got a little bit harder and more realistic. You know, you went through bayonet training. You went through the machine gun course where they'd shoot live rounds over your head and you'd have to crawl through the barbed wire. Uh, then you start thinking to yourself, you know, this, this is getting pretty real. You know, did um, do you recall anybody who got injured uh, during the process of the, of basic training ever? No, I, I think there was a couple guys got hurt in the hand to hand combat. You know, where you would they would teach you how to, you know, fight with a knife or you know the hand to hand combat end of it. Some guys got hurt, but not really not nothing really bad. Um, one story that I recall hearing from you uh, a couple of times in the training process was the tunnel. Uh, the tunnel climb or, or the tunnel crawl. That was that was later on when I went through uh, the uh, jungle warfare tactical training. That part of it. That was advanced training. Okay, so this basic. is after basic, right? Okay, 
Um, so then we'll go. We'll get into that in a moment, in in a few minutes here. So the basic training's coming to an end. Graduation's yeah. just around the corner. Is your yeah. mom talking to you yet? Yeah, she started talking <laughs> to me after about the the first week I was gone. I mean, you didn't get a chance to really talk. You sent postcards, and I I showed you some of those postcards. You yep. check off the I'm okay, you know, box, and you would check off this. You wouldn't write a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was able to sneak out one time and and I'll make a phone call home. Uh, uh, collect phone call home, which a lot of people don't remember that she could do back in those days, and she was she started to accept it pretty good. That's good. Yep. So, um, aside from that time, you made your bed wrong. Yep. Did you ever have any other incidents where you got in trouble in the uh, no. training process? No. As the physical training got harder, and you know, you had to run longer, and you had to hike with the pack packs, and you had to, you know, do that kind of it. I would think to myself, man, I'm not going to make it. You know, this is really hard. You know, and I'd I'd always been physically able to do things easily, mm-hmm. but the more you had to do this, it was getting harder and harder. And I used to think to myself, man, you know, I've seen guys flunk out already. I mean, guys that couldn't do it, they get recycled back, or we'd have to start all over again, or somebody would be bounced out because they weren't considered to be military. Uh, they, they they couldn't deal with the military. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, oh, man, I said, my, my father went through this. I mean, he, he did it. Uh, I had friends that had gone through it. If I flunk out, man, I'm never going to go home. So that you know? kind of drove you? Exactly. That and, and uh, a coach I had in football uh, when I was in high school. It sounds funny, but uh, his name was George Perlis. And he, he ended up uh, uh, being a defensive line coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers, had four Super Bowl rings. But he instilled in us a lot of the military stuff when we were playing football. And one of the things he used to always yell was when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, remember that. And I, for some reason, that just kept coming back in my head all the time. Your motto. Exactly. If you could, if you could do that and you get through the stuff that you did, you can do this. And that's basically what pushed me through. Before the graduation, what would you say is your, your, was your favorite part of your training? And what, what did you hate the most in your training? What was the favorite and the hated part of training? Uh, I think I, I liked the uh, – the firing of the weapon, that was, I enjoyed that. And believe it or not, I, the physical um, course that you had to go through to pass at the end, you had to do certain things. You had different stages to go through. Walls to climb. Yeah, you had to climb the wall. You had to, the hand-to-hand combat. You know, you had to go up against the instructor and do those things right. You had to do the military code of uh, uh, justice. You had to do that. So those those things you had to go on. I was I got by that time I was pretty good at doing most of the stuff, and I think I enjoyed that a lot. And I enjoyed the guys that I was with too. I mean, that was one of the things, you know. What did you hate the most? The hate? Yeah. There's got to be one thing that bugged well, you more than that. Like not bugged you, but no. you just didn't like doing it. You couldn't do anything. I mean, you had no real life during that time. You couldn't go to the PX. You couldn't. They called it pogey bait. You couldn't go buy candy or. Not that I ate that stuff, but just the fact that you couldn't do a lot of things, you know, and you were confined. Uh, it makes you want to do more. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think I missed that more than anything else. Um, you mentioned the guys that you were in uh, yeah. in uh, your basic training with. Throw right. some names out there. Just name some names of people. Well, the one guy with. we talked about yesterday was, was uh, Jackson, who was his name. He was my bunk mate. And I got really ill about halfway through training one time. And uh, – I had a high fever, and I was sweating, cold sweats, and I was really, really sick. 
And I didn't want to, if you, if you had to report to the uh, medical center and you were too sick to continue training, they would recycle. You'd have to start all over again. And I really didn't want that. And he got me through a couple nights like that. And he got me through the training and he did some stuff for me, you know, during training to get me through a lot of the, okay. the stuff I was having. And, and I think I remember him more, more than anything. And I really never knew what happened to them. Because you got to remember, I was joined for four years. I was there four years. Some of these guys were draftees. Some of these guys are, you know, NGs. So they didn't even know what they were going to do. I knew where I was going. These guys didn't know. They didn't know if they were going to go to the infantry. They didn't know if they were going to go to the armor. They didn't know if they were going here or there. They they didn't get an assignment until after their basic training. But you already knew where you were I already knew what I did. And and towards the end of the training, the first sergeant called me in, you know, and said, look, he says, you're going to the Army Security Agency. He says, we don't want you to waste your talents. He says, you're, you're a good, you know, you'd be good infantryman or you'd be good to go to the, the airborne or you'd be good to go to special forces. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't think so, you know. And all our cadre, of course, were all Korean war vets, you know, and, it was, mm-hmm. and they were all there and trying to talk you into doing something. But I said to myself, I got four years, man. I don't want to end up in airborne for four years or anything like that. So sure. I, I decided to stick with what I, what I had. So graduate graduation day arrives. Right. right. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of a hoopla about that. You yeah. get yeah. you get to do your marching in front of yeah. all your superiors, yeah. and family's finally coming out yeah. to visit. My did, family. Did your parents make the trip? Yeah, my family drove down. Believe it or not, they drove from Michigan down to Missouri to see it, and they were there for the uh, graduation, and then they drove me home. And I think I started training in September, and I think I got home Thanksgiving week. Uh, is when I came back for my uh, my leave. I had a, a leave before I went to advanced training. Do you remember, uh, did your father say anything to you on graduation day that stands out to you or, or your no, mother? No, they you know they were kind of reserved. I mean, my dad really never said a lot of stuff about anything. You know, I think he was really proud. But I saw my mother changing. She was going more patriotic side now than she was anything else. You know, I think she was more into the fact that you know, I look good in my uniform, and, <laughs> you know, you know, boy, you look good. You look like a man now, that that type of thing. I mean, she was really into that now. She was getting more into it. You had two little sisters at yeah. the time. How did yeah. they react to you being in the military? I don't think my middle sister had much. You know, she was maybe 12 at the time, maybe 13, I don't know, maybe 12. My, my, my little sister was maybe four or five at the time. I think my little sister was more into it than my my older sister, my Oldest sister. Okay. But they enjoyed it too. So um, you go home for, you said a month? No, I was only home for, I think they gave us 10 days leave before we had to go to uh, advanced training. All right. So um, advanced training begins 10 days later. And where are you headed to now? It's headed to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, which was the Army Security Agency training center. Now, explain for people who don't know what the Army Security Agency is. Yep. This is an organization that does not exist anymore. Right, correct. Uh, it's it's uh, become, uh, I think it's split off into a few different organizations, yeah. but but mainly now it's known as the Intelligence, Military yeah, Intelligence it's, Corps. It's, they broke it up into Military Intelligence, National Security Agency, and Department of uh, Defense. Okay. Now, you guys were responsible for knowing what was going on before anybody else. Yeah, it was a... Uh, they well, they had two sides of Army Security Agency. One side was the operator security uh, in the security agency, which I was. Then, of course, they had the su- support staff, 
which was the MPs and the, the clerical side and the cook side. Uh, we all had to have top secret clearances, and to be an operator, we had to have top secret crypto clearances, which I had. And uh, uh, the operators, it was broken down, and what we did was we clandestinely uh, monitored electronically as well as uh, voice uh, intercept of uh, enemy units. Uh, it could be either in Europe monitoring Russian troop movements, or it could be in Southeast Asia monitoring the Viet Cong or North Vietnamese. And again, basically that's what we did at this time. No, even though Vietnam War, I don't think was ever declared a war. No, it was still not at a level where people were talking about it yeah. every day, and it was in the news. So again, yeah. you you really didn't know where you no. were going to end up after all no. this training. No, I was in. Now you're looking at December, November, December '65, and. Uh, the buildup for Vietnam really didn't start till like July of 66 when he really started sending combat troops in, combat support troops in. You know, they really started the big buildup then, but still wasn't very big. I mean, you would, they would, your instructors would talk to you about it because some of them had been there in advisory roles. Uh, you learned it. When I went through the, the school, I learned uh, a lot of the stuff that would be involved if I did end up going there. Of course, then you learned the opposite too. Uh, mine was intercept. I did all the intercept of communications, uh, monitoring uh, their troop movements, uh, learned how to do troop movements, learned how to locate uh, troop movements. Uh, I really didn't get on the electronic side of it much. So when you get to this advanced training, mm-hmm. is it less about the physicality training and now yeah. it's more about your specialty of what you're dealing in? So it was more like yeah. a classroom setting? Yeah, yeah. we did – very at this point, we started really moving away from the actual military. Uh, they still were our support people. They did our payroll. They did our the cooking and all that kind of stuff. But we started gravitating towards the national security agency side and the uh, Department of Defense side. People need to understand this because I I only recently talked to you about this a little bit before we were going to mm-hmm. do the podcast. I, I wasn't aware. That in the Army Security Agency, you're technically in the Army, but you're technically not. Correct. Your job was to be a ghost somewhat? Yeah, basically a ghost. I mean, I wouldn't call it a spy or it was nothing that glamorous. It was the fact that our job wasn't to confront people like the military or the, the, the infantry. It was to watch. Our job was to sit back and, and monitor and watch and uh Gain intelligence, real live intelligence for to support those infantry people. Sure, your intelligence would lead to where our guys would position right. to to Correct. take on yep. the enemy in so, combat. So the so the enemy wouldn't send a battalion up against a platoon or a company of Americans. But what I find crazy about the situation you were in is you were a private yep. and you were in the army, but technically, Correct. regular army guys with a higher uh, level of uh, uh, where you're at in in the right. the scheme of things in the military, um, they they really couldn't tell you what to do. No, they could tell you what to do. You didn't have to really do it, and it was going to involve compromising your job. Uh, you got to remember, we we had top secret crypto clearances, and these people weren't cleared for a lot of the things that we had to do. So they couldn't come into our training area. 
They couldn't, and when we got operational, they couldn't come into our operations area. You had cards, didn't you, that you had to carry on what would happen if you were injured Correct. or... Um, well, it went in our file. It was a letter that went in our file. If, if uh, you were injured or sick, uh, where you had to be hospitalized and put under any kind of uh, 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 drugs... Anesthesia or right. anything like that. You would have to have somebody from the organization that I was in come there... And be and with you be at all with times. You at all times to make sure that you didn't say anything. I mean, because when you're out of it, you exactly. might you might leak out something exactly. that's not for everyone's ears. And, and it's hard to understand that a 19 or 18 year old had this much responsibility. But you know, look at some of the 19 and 18 year olds now. They're flying drones in Iraq and yeah, and doing a lot of things. But you know, you talk about this, and it's you know, you, people think, oh man, you know, look at it, just really glamorous something to do. I mean, you were a spy and that, but it really wasn't like that. I mean, you weren't but hiding behind corners and listening to people's conversations at but, that point. But what's interesting about it is what you guys did, right. a lot of it anyway, yeah. they acknowledge you existed at least, but... They didn't acknowledge. Back then, they didn't acknowledge you existed. No, but I mean, now, yeah. now, now, currently, they acknowledge you exist, but... Nothing you did right. is allowed to be public as far as uh, – I mean, aren't there guys still waiting on medals from the ASA who, who yeah. technically couldn't get them because they well, didn't exist until just a few because, years ago? Because we didn't report to the military, a lot of the things that some of the guys did went unnoticed or unrecognized because they didn't have the people to write them up for the, the things that, that they did. Sure. And there was a lot of that. I mean, I wasn't involved in any of that stuff. You know, I was no hero, but these some of these guys really were and really didn't get the recognition that they, they wanted. There's a, there's a large group of you that are now members of, like, Facebook pages right. and things like that. Correct. Uh, and, and I know there's an ongoing um, rally to to make some of the things that are not yeah. currently public yeah. public to the to everyone. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of stuff is coming out now that you can talk about. There's still a lot of stuff, I'm sure. That that isn't, but uh, there's a there's a group that's trying to get a uh, national monument for the Army Security Agency at Arlington Cemetery uh, that recognizes our outfit because really we weren't recognized. We had a patch for the ASA we were able to wear when we were in the United States, but once you went overseas, a lot of places you couldn't wear that patch because they didn't want you to be recognized. I noticed going that. through your paperwork. When we were looking at some of your paperwork, it would uh, it would say in certain countries you could wear certain things, and yeah. in other countries you had to be Correct. in civilian clothes. Correct. Correct. I I was fortunate or unfortunate, whatever. But when I jumping ahead just a little bit after the training at the ASA Center, uh, I had hoped to get into go to Bangkok, Thailand, which was a civilian status at that point. You only wore civilian clothes. Okay. But unfortunately, that didn't work out right. No, no. But go back to you, the training. You thought it did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do want to say this, too. Uh, the patch. Yeah. Uh, if you ever see anybody who has an eagle claw holding a white lightning bolt, right. that is the ASA, ASA. Right. patch. Correct. So you might be seeing uh, somebody who is a part of that organization. So we're back in training. Yep. Uh, this is advanced training. You're in right. Massachusetts. Right. What's it like, uh, you know, I, I know everything in regular basic training is like, do this, do that. Yeah. Is, ha, does the mood change? Is it more relaxed this time more around? Relaxed. Yeah, more relaxed. 
people still, aren't screaming at you all the no, time. We're still living in barracks. Uh, uh, I went through what they called night student training. We started at uh, six o'clock in the evening and went to school until two o'clock in the morning. Okay. Uh, because they were building up the Army Security Agency at that time, pushing people through the training. They had people going to training day and night. And with that, on a base, it might be difficult to sleep at times? Correct. Yep. <laughs> you you had mentioned this, yeah. and I think I can talk about this. Uh, the airborne guys were stationed. Their barracks were yeah, right across yeah, from yours. The, the special Forces uh, guys were there. And they're loud. Yeah. And, and, they would, <laughs> and they would be getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to do their hoorahs and physical training. And we would be trying to go to sleep. So there was a lot of back and forth, of course. You know? <laughs> but uh, at that time at Fort Devens, they had the 196 Light Infantry Brigade was going through training. And that was the first all-draftee uh, combat brigade since World War II. Okay. And they were in training. And they were training to go to the Dominican Republic which at that time uh, was having a lot of civil unrest. So the 101st Airborne was at the, in the Dominican Republic, and this brigade was supposed to replace the 101st Airborne so they could go to Vietnam, uh, which didn't happen. The 196th Infantry ended up getting orders to go to Vietnam. Oh. And they were all draftees. And as you could tell, it was pretty hairy for a while you know, yeah. uh, for those guys. But that's I'm regressing a little bit, but... We were all there on that base going through training. Yeah. Uh, we went through the technical training there. It was in a secure building. About how many weeks for something like that? I started in December, and I got through the end of the training was in uh, June of 66. It's weird to think that something that is so specific for yeah. military, you only get roughly six months, seven months of training on, like, mm -hmm. that's that's almost a, a situation that makes my head explode because that's just seven months and you're using equipment that you've never, again, an 18, 19-year-old yeah. yeah. using equipment you've never used, right. and seven months is enough time to train you on it uh, to the point where you have men's lives yeah. in your hands. Yeah, it's it's the military... Of course, had studied training people for years and years, so they had uh, the systems down. I mean, it was a lot of repetition, uh, a lot of hands-on training. Everything in the military uh, comes down to, like, muscle memory on a lot of this yeah, stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And people would wash out. I mean, it wasn't an easy course to get through. And if you washed out, even though you still had a four-year obligation, you ended up you, – you could end up anywhere. So were the guys that you trained with for this, uh, your advanced training, mm -hmm. were they guys that you were going to stay with when you were finally transferred, or did you guys get sent, uh, your your group get sent all over the place? We got sent all over the place. So I mean, yeah. so people you were serving with and in, in, in doing this advanced right. training with were not going to be? No, that you were aware of. You didn't get your orders until like the last week you were there. Okay. And then so the advanced training's coming to an end? And uh, you're about to be given your papers. How did this work when they tell you where you're going to go? Well, before that, you had talked about uh, tactical training. Uh, to get the final test of the school was you went through what they called advanced tactical training. And it was jungle warfare training. But it was in Massachusetts, if you can picture that. 
So how do they do that? Did they try their best to make the the landscape yeah. similar to yeah, what you would experience? They had VC villages set up. They had the interrogators. They were called the Minahunis, and it was a group of Hawaiian soldiers that they brought together in a specific platoon that played the aggressors or played the Viet Cong. They dressed them in the pajamas and the, the hats and the whole stuff. So they were the aggressors. And you knew the time was coming for you to get that, but you didn't know when. So... Any certain day, they could walk in at 2 o'clock in the morning and wake you up and say, your training started, which happened. That's how it played out for right. you. That's how it played out. Get your gear. It's training time or, you know, you're, you're up. So what are some of the things that you were trained in this advanced tactical well, training? They, they, they teach you how to escape and evade. Uh, they taught you weapons that you really didn't, you weren't familiar with when you went through basic training. They taught you how to shoot the you know, the M60 machine gun. They taught you how to shoot a bazooka. Uh, they, had a, they taught you all those different things uh, that you didn't have in basic training. They taught you uh, booby traps, uh, how to set them, how to evade them. Uh, they taught you all the things that you would learn to survive. Basically, it was a survival school. And the last thing that you had to do was they gave you a problem and they clipped a little card on you that had checkpoints. And you were dropped off in an area, and you were told that you had 24 hours to get from point A all the way to point Z, and you had hit every one of these checkpoints. Were there obstacles along the way? Obstacles along the way. You had to cross rivers. You had to go through. Were the other, the, the, the aggressor soldiers out there as yeah, well, and you had to avoid them? There. And how they, how they did that was after you had your training, you went through all the classroom, how to do all these different things. They loaded you up on a deuce and a half a truck, and you were on your way. They said, okay, you're, you're on a supply run to wherever. And 2 o'clock in the morning, you're on this truck, and all of a sudden all heck breaks loose. You know, rifle shots are going off, uh, fake bombs are going off. And they're telling you that, okay, you know, scatter, everybody scatter. And you're on your own. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. Oh. And now you have to leave and make it to what they called the Viet Cong village. And even though you knew that this situation and scenario was completely no. set up, it's still terrifying, isn't well, it? Well, the reason was because you're out in the field for two weeks and you get no sleep. Uh, you're training during the day and at night you had to guard, have guard duty and they were harassing you all the time. The Minahunis would you know, throw smoke grenades or they would uh, try to attack your positions. So they kept you awake. And pretty soon, after no sleep for that amount of time, your mind starts thinking, man, this is, you know, it's starting to be real. It I becomes mean, way more real. Yeah, it becomes real. Yeah, your brain absolutely exactly. starts to shut down exactly. and work on autopilot. Exactly. Oh. So once you hit the Viet Cong village, the VC village, you get inside and uh, uh, you were – I should say you were captured to get inside. I got captured. I thought I was going to get away because there were some special forces guys going through the same course. And I said, oh, man, I'm going to hook up with these guys. These guys are pretty good. They're snake eaters, you know. Well, we got captured. Uh. And they take you to the Viet Cong village. And you get in the Viet Cong village, and they got the Minahunis there, and they got bonfires going, and they're talking Vietnamese. And, you know, they torture you, basically. Uh, mine was they had, a like, a totem pole set in the ground. It was a telephone pole. Okay. And then they would wrap your legs around it, bend you backwards with their hands tied, you know, just about where your knees were going to pop up. And then they would take telephone uh, 
field phones, you know, the kind you used to crank. You ever see them on TV yeah. in the movies? Well, you'd hook the wires to your fingers and you'd crank it. Oh. Well, you weren't getting a lot of electricity, and you really weren't getting tortured, but because your state of mind at this point in time, you know, you're thinking they're going to kill you, you know. Uh, and, you know, you got fires going and people screaming and stuff, and they got guys playing that they're guys that were captured. That, oh, I'm dying, Mom. And you're yelling, Mom, for Mom and everything. And you're going, wow. You're going, holy crap. Well, the thing about it was if you flunked that, if you got gave them what they were looking for, you're out. Absolutely. And with you, you had the top secret crypto right. clearance. And you were out because they, you know, even though they weren't really doing this to you, if you couldn't handle that, you couldn't handle the real things. Yeah. The final thing was once you went through the thing and they saw they weren't going to break you and, you know, they, they say, okay, you're done with this portion. They would mark off that you were captured. And they say, okay, escape. Well, they would take you into this little building and there was a hole in the ground. And you're job was at this point in time is to go through this into a tunnel and go through the tunnel and you escape. There was a river stream that you would come out at. That tunnel was maybe 50 yards long, 25 yards long. And I went into the tunnel and you're in your, your gear. You got your backpack on, you got your helmet and all that kind of stuff. And the, the tunnel is basically what the tunnel was is, you know, what uh, in high school you got the lockers mm-hmm. to put your stuff in. Well, what they did is line these lockers up end to end, take out the floor and take out the top and bury them. And you had to crawl from where you were at the Viet Cong Village through these all the way out to where the river was. So we're talking on somebody who's even medium-sized. Tight. We're talking tight. Really tight fit. And, of course, there's dirt inside there. And, and, and your pack. I mean, your yeah, pack you had is— everything on. Yeah. yeah, okay. And you could barely move. Well, <clears throat> I got in. Guy got in behind me. Guy was in front of me. We start going through this thing. Pretty soon, the guy in front of me froze. You know, he just panicked because of the confines. He just panicked. I couldn't move forward. The guy behind me couldn't move backward because there was a guy behind him, too. Oh. And we were stuck. And here we are in this tunnel. And, of course, I'm not one for tight spaces either because I wasn't a real little guy. You know, I was pretty muscular at that time. And we couldn't get this guy to budge. I mean, his feet were right in my face. And my feet were right in the face of the other guys. Nowhere to go. You just trapped. So what they knew, because nobody was coming out at the other end, the instructors knew something was wrong. So they had to come in from the other other side, crawl in, grab this guy by the arms, and pull him out. And once he was pulled out, then we continued on through. Does he get the boot? Yeah, he got booted. So he got dropped from the advanced training. And you never see him again. He'll get recycled back into regular infantry probably? Wherever. You know, he could be a cook, you know. But they would keep him in the ASA because he's already got a security clearance, you know. Okay. So they would keep him as a cook or an MP or a clerk or something like that. But he wouldn't be an operator. So you got through. Got through. And uh, yeah, it's time. It all the way back. Time now for graduation for that as well? They really didn't have much of a graduation for that. You know, it was advanced training at that point. And um, all they did was when you were done with that, you went back to your barracks. The next day they said, look on a bulletin board. And they had a whole list, everybody's name, and where they were assigned. Okay. You know? And at and that point, it was all Vietnam, 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 and then maybe a Turkey or maybe a, you know, a Germany. And mine said, walking up to it, you Bangkok. find your name, and where is it? Bangkok. Bangkok, Thailand. And I yelped and jumped around, and I said, "Oh, this is great," you know, because I'd heard really good stories about Bangkok. And you, you thought the whole being a civilian aspect yep. of it was cool. Yep. Living in apartments, you know, kind of a really cool place to be. Well, you know what I think I'm going to do? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to end the podcast here. 
Okay. And uh, we'll pick up on episode two, and we will discuss your very, very <laughs> short trip to Bangkok, Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very short. And then uh, we'll talk about where you ended up. And then, um, you know, uh, I, I, I know you got to see the world, so we'll chat a little bit about that as well. That'll be on episode two of Soldier Stories. Uh, we are talking with Tom Pfeiffer who is a member of the Army Security Agency of the United States military. Honestly, uh, you would be one of the first rounds of soldiers who did end up in Vietnam. I assume, obviously, there were some men and men already over there and, and women already over there yep. um, that you'd still be considered the front end. The, f- the first casualty of the Vietnam War was an Army Security Agency uh, guy by the name of Davis. And he was out in the field, and they were ambushed. He was an advisor to the uh, the uh, South Vietnamese Army. So he was the first confirmed casualty of the Vietnam War. Okay. We're going to pick up with Episode 2 next week.